You're listening to the Primary Medicine Podcast with Kevin and Dimitri, bringing you the best in primary care CME that you can use in your everyday practice. Welcome back to the Primary Medicine Podcast. My name is Dr. Dimitri. I'm a family doctor who works in Gatineau, Quebec, and Ottawa, Ontario. I also, I'm also a faculty lecturer at McGill. And today, we have Dr. Babani joining us again. Uh, he's back. Hi, Dr. Babani. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. Let me tell you a little well-known fact. So, Ottawa happens to be one of the coldest capitals in the world. I, I didn't know that specifically, but I could imagine. <laughs> Did you know that in 2015, we were the coldest capital in the world. We actually went out uh, to the capital of Mongolia by one degree Celsius. You mean out Russia and, and Stockholm too? Yeah, no, actually colder than the capital of Russia, colder than the capital of Stockholm. You know, having said that, I did grow up in Ottawa as a teenager and we all sort of had to deal with uh, the specter of frostbite. You know, we'd often hear a story how a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend would forget their gloves, forget their mittens, and maybe had a bit too much to drink, and then end up the emergency department because, you know, they they froze a limb or they froze a ear or they froze something else. I myself had gotten uh, closest to getting a frostbite. Not that close, but close-ish. Uh, what about yourself, Oheed? Have you any professional, personal frostbite stories? I have to say, I have also come close to it. I do have Raynaud's, so it gets pretty chilly, and I kind of catch it beforehand. Um, I have had a few patients with bad enough frostbite that they lost a toe. He, he worked at Hydro, and uh, one, one of the cold winters, uh, going out and fixing Hydro poles, he got himself into trouble. Yeah, and, and I mean, considering that you're working further north, I'm sure you might end up seeing some more cases of this. One of the reasons I chose this topic is because February happens to be one of the coldest months in Ottawa. So I thought it was a good idea to brush up on the topic because I might up seeing a couple of cases in the walking. Who knows? So let's talk about frostbite. I mean, I guess the first question I have for you is there's, there's a difference between frostbite and frostnip. And what is that difference? Kind of boiled down to the, the status of the lesion, I guess, if you call it that, after rewarming. So... Frostnip is something that is typically reversible, while frostbite usually involves some sort of destruction and uh, is not completely reversible. Yeah, so I've certainly uh, had frostnip before, but thankfully never frostbite. Again, frostbite involves the idea that uh, the tissue might lose function permanently if it's not treated correctly. Let's go a bit over the pathophysiology here. So how does freezing cause tissue destruction, tissue damage? Well, it comes to two ways. One and this is the more obvious one, is you are made primarily out of water, and when water freezes, it crystallizes and expands and breaks. So you end up having cellular damage from that perspective because it's too cold for the water to stay liquid. And then the other component, as I alluded to with my uh, renal, when you have cold, your blood is shunted out of your extremities, and when it's shunted out, you tend to have some ischemia, and with uh, with that, you can get um, issues that way. And being a bit of a 
of a biochemistry geek, again, proteins tend to misfold if the temperature is not correct. So that causes damage, again, uh, to cell function. But furthermore, the other issue here is that if you damage the endothelium, what happens is you may activate the thrombotic cascade. So you can actually have thrombosis. The extremities can, can further lead to ischemia of the tissues. And what well, at what temperature does this process of cell destruction begin? Typically, it's minus two degrees. Well, yeah, freezing. But your body is really good at keeping you warm. So to get down that high, you need to kind of be around minus 25 degrees outside or at least with wind chill. So uh, that's a typical summer day in Ottawa, right? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, minus 25. Although I've read that, you know, naked skin can freeze within minutes if you're at uh, minus 45. I can attest to that. I've been outside waiting for the school bus in minus 45 degree weather. Uh, me too. Uh, I, I distinctly remember waiting for my uh, bus to go to university, and uh, it was so cold that, that my nostrils would freeze shut. So uh, I feel for you there. So it gets pretty cold in Ottawa, I can tell you. So my next question to you, Wyatt, is who's actually at risk for frostbite? I mean, obviously everybody is, but are there certain populations that are more at risk than others? This uh, actually goes along with our previous discussion on heat stroke and heat-related illnesses because it's almost exactly the same. Anyone who is young or old, because their mechanism of compensation isn't as good as if you're a normal, healthy adult, you can have people who have health issues that dull their brain, so things like uh, dementia or cerebral palsy or something like that, where they may not feel or their their brains may not respond to the fact that they're getting cold. And then the, the stereotypical uh, diabetics or peripheral vascular diseases or people who don't have good uh, circulation. Yes, and, and I would add one more thing, and I sort of alluded to that in the introduction, but obviously people who have uh, drank a lot of alcohol. You know, the, the unfortunate alcohol, what it does for you is that, first of all, it, uh, it doesn't uh, prevent you from feeling the cold, so you don't experience cold as you should. And the second thing it does is it actually vasodilates your extremities, so you end up losing a lot more heat than you should. So, so again, that's why you typically get that story of somebody over-drinking and, uh, you know, not wearing their mittens and then enabling the emerge. And you know that the two times I was closest to uh, to to having frostbite is because I had been drinking a bit too much, I have to admit. Now, Wahid, how how would you diagnose frostbite? Well, it's a clinical diagnosis. As mentioned before, it has to do with whether rewarming works or not and a history of cold exposure. Incidentally, the frostbite that I've seen actually even look like burns sometimes. So you have to figure out what they were exposed to. You don't want it to diagnose it as frostbite when it actually is a burn. Right. So history taking is quite important. Obviously, if they had, uh, you know, molten lava fall on their hand or something, obviously you're not de- dealing with uh, frostbite, right? Well, hopefully not. <laughs> There's actually a grading scale for frostbite to, to assess severity, and it's based on skin changes. However, the tricky part here is that uh, these skin changes may happen a couple of hours, up, actually up to 48 hours after rewarming. So it can be a bit hard to figure out how severe the actual frostbite is. 
initially. You, you sort of have to diagnose it uh, in the future. So how do you tend to uh, grade frostbite severity yourself, uh, Wahid? Based on similar structure as burns, it seems like a layer of skin. So you can either go by the amount frostbitten, just like in burns. So whether it's uh, affecting just distal uh, extremities versus um, getting closer up your hand. Or you can go by skin changes. So the basic being just superficial and then getting worse with clear blisters to hemorrhagic blisters and to necrosis. Um, yeah, that, that's a pretty practical way to, to grade it. You know, if you want to be a bit more formal, they, the one way they do it is they, they have grade 1, 2, 3, and 4. And then they base, they base the grade on the proximal extension and the skin changes that are seen. So grade 1 is your distal phalanx for the proximal extension. Grade 2 is the middle phalanx. Grade 3 is your proximal phalanx. And grade 4 is your metacarpal or tarsal. Then if you look at the actual uh, skin changes, grade 1 would be no blisters, grade 2 clear blisters, grade 3 and 4 hemorrhagic blisters. So that's one way to do it. Another way to do it is to look at, uh, you know, are you dealing with deep frostbite or superficial frostbite? So deep usually means that it's affecting the tendons and ligaments. And the way you can say that is if you look for hemorrhagic blisters. So generally, if you have hemorrhagic blisters, you're dealing with a deeper structures. You know, your way where hit is probably the most practical. And another very practical way would be to look for hemorrhagic blisters or not. Obviously, if they're hemorrhagic, then it's uh, it's a much more severe frostbite. Wahid, have you ever heard about using bone scans or MRIs to assess severity? Again, the, the issue is that assessing severity could take time. So you have to rewarm the tissue first. But apparently with a uh, bone scan or MRI, you can, you, you can um, determine the determine the severity earlier on? I personally haven't, especially because majority of the time I can't get those tests done quickly enough. But I have, for infections, of course, trying to find the depth of infection, we can get MRIs and bone scans but, and, and burns sometimes we do. But yeah, you can definitely do it for frostbite because it's a similar pathophysiological process. Yeah, if you have access to MRIs or bone scans, it may be worth doing them. But, uh, you know, some of the northern comedians may not. Something to consider if you work at the emerge and you have uh, somebody with frostbite. So let's talk about axial treatment then. What is the goal of therapy, Wahid? Well, as I mentioned, my uh, one patient who lost his toe, that's what you don't want is to lose limbs. Yeah, so really what you're trying to do is prevent amputation. The goal of treatment is to prevent amputation and maintain function of the limb. So, what has been your approach in patients with frostbite? Well, the way I've dealt with them is the first thing you want to do is to gently rewarm. You don't want to go too fast because it will make it worse the other way and you can actually cause, I've seen burns around frostbite, so you don't want that. But yeah, gentle rewarming. Uh, much like with a burn, you want to do gentle uh, cooling of the area. And then once you rewarm, you treat it sort of like a burn where you have some sort of antiseptic ointment or solution that you put on to prevent secondary infections. Right. In general, you want to gently rewarm the affected limb. So you can use blankets or warm water. They say around 40, 42 degrees. 
You can uh, even add the chlorhexidine to the water to increase the antiseptic properties of it. And you know, the thing about rewarming you have to be careful is if is you know if you find a person with frostbite in the field, you have to be make you have to make sure that if you rewarm their limb, it doesn't refreeze before it goes to the hospital. Because if you have the cycle of rewarming and refreezing, uh, the damage might be worse. Don't forget about painkillers. You might have to get something as strong as morphine or and add some ibuprofen as well. Yeah. I I personally don't pop any blisters with the risk of infection or, or further damage. I know some people do. Uh, clear blisters. Um, I don't know if anyone that will drain a hemorrhagic blister for fear of uh, infection. But m- most times I will just do wound care and have the blisters pop themselves. Yeah, to the whole thing regarding removing or not removing blisters, it's a bit of it's a bit controversial. Currently what they suggest is if the blister is clear, you may try to aspirate it. Uh if it's hemorrhagic, then try to avoid draining it if you can, unless it's causing a functional problem. For example, the person can't bend their joint because of the blister. Like the issue with that with with aspirating a blister is that uh, you increase the chance of infection and the skin can dry up. But on the other hand, it, some people argue that blisters contain a lot of inflammatory factors, so prostaglandins and thrombol- and uh, factors that cause coagulation and clotting. So draining them might be, might be a good thing. So generally, clear blisters, you may want to drain those. And if you're dealing with hemorrhagic, you may want to avoid draining them. Let's just summarize a bit. Really, your approach to a frostbite is rewarm. You know, get an idea of how severe it is. Drain clear blisters. You know, apply some kind of antibiotic on top of the of the, the, the damaged skin. The topical antibiotic, or you can use you can use aloe vera. Put in some heavy packing on top of that, and uh, you know, hope for the best. However, you know, even though this is not in the guidelines now, there's some some evidence you can use some medications. I, again, don't personally use any of these things, but there is some evidence with regards to vasodilators because, uh, of course, they get blood flow to the area that can help prevent uh, and do internal re- rewarming. Fibrolytics uh, or anticoagulants prevent the rupture of the blood vessels or blisters or you know the things that would end up requiring amputation. Right, that 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 makes sense. Using vasodilators to prevent constriction, and then using antithrombolytics to prevent thrombosis. And in fact, there are some studies out there that show that there's lower rates of amputation when you use those medications. Again, it's it's not in the official guidelines, but it's probably going to make its way into them eventually, um, because you know if it helps to prevent amputation, that. That's really great. But um, let's try and make it practical here. And I, I guess the question is, what is it that you can do in the family doctor's office if you're dealing with frostbite? Um, you know, obviously the, the first thing you should always do is is rewarm. You can certainly do that in the office. And then I guess you need to consider sending them to emerge. I know, what well, do, do you tend to do a lot of, like, in-office frostbite treatments up north where you are? We do treat a lot in the office with minor minor ones and wound care. You, you, you treat it like a bird, essentially. 
Yeah, I, I guess you're right. I mean, in the you know, you can have them come back in 24 hours after rewarming it to see how severe it is. And if it's really getting bad, you know, if they have hemorrhagic blisters, they can just go to emerge. So it's something you, you can consider doing if, if, you know, going to emerge can be hard or, uh, you know, emerge isn't accessible where you are. Again, you have to be comfortable with it. But, but, uh, but, but yeah, that's it. You know, thank you for coming on and uh, talking about frostbite. Hopefully that's helpful. Hopefully we both make it through the cold month of February and, uh, you know, we both survive the, the, the Canadian winter and uh, we'll certainly chat, chat again. Thank you. Thank you, Wahid. Thanks for having me back.